Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, is quoted as saying that the two most significant times in our lives are number one, the day you're born, and number two, the day you figure out why. The day you're born and when you figure out why. That assumes that there's a purpose in everybody's life. And that assumes that there's a purposer, someone who has a purpose for creation, uh, someone who has a purpose for people, someone who has a purpose for you and me. And being born is just the start. The pinnacle of our lives is when we figure out why. Because once we do that, then we can begin to seek, prepare, plan, and fulfill that purpose. And then we can be the people that God created us to be. That brings us to our big gospel word this morning, full of syllables, sanctification. Now before you recoil, because when I say sanctification, what occurs to your mind is sanctimonious. And you don't want to be that, do you? So we're not talking about sanctimony. We're talking about sanctification. It comes from a Greek word, a hagios. You might have heard about hagiography, the study of saints. And it's translated and comes out in a lot of different ways in English. Sanctify, sanctification, saint, holy, consecrate. All those words are derived from this one Greek word. If you look at the uh, continuum of the Christian life, it has three parts. It begins with salvation, repentance, faith, regeneration, all those good words. It consummates with resurrection. And that big period in between is called sanctification. Now, we know how resurrection works. You lay there in your tomb, if you haven't decayed or die in the ocean, you lay there in your embalmed body in a wakeful state until the Lord returns and then you reach up and push open the lid and you jump up and you say, here I am, Lord, ready to be resurrected. Y'all don't, it doesn't happen that way. It's kind of hard for a dead body to do that, isn't it? In fact, there might not be much left there. Uh, Robert E. Lee's uh, precious daughter passed away during the Civil War. And it was the daughter, he said to his wife, was the one most uh, attuned to spiritual things. She was the most committed Christian. Uh, she died in Warrington, North Carolina, which is a place where they had baths and spas which used to be a, a very popular thing, uh, sulfur springs, silver springs, whenever there were springs. And uh, he, of course, could not leave his duties as a general in the army to attend her funeral. And neither could his wife, who was, uh, had maladies 
So she was buried in Warrington, and they built a beautiful monument around her because she was Lee's daughter. And then what happened over the decades is that people started uh, uh, defacing the monument. They did the same thing with Grant's tomb in uh, New York to the point that the family said, if you don't do something to protect and repair Grant's tomb, uh, we're going to move it. And so the federal government got to work and uh, made it back to the beautiful thing it is today. So they said, what are we going to do about this daughter? And they said, well, we're going to relocate her to the Lee Crypt at Washington and Lee College. And that way we won't have to deal with this problem anymore. So they went there uh, to uh, relocate her remains. Well, I told you earlier, it was a place with uh, water springs, warm springs, right? It had a high water table. So they dug down, and you know what they found? Four brass handles. No casket, no body, no bones. It had been over 100 years in that wet soil. So what do you do? Well, there's a protocol. You measure around, and then you scoop up that earth, and then you relocate it. So if you go to Washington Lee, you'll see the Lee recumbent, like he's on a, a bed sleeping. And then you'll see these wall crypts, and there's Annie. But is that her, or is that dirt? It's clear to us that in the resurrection, there's nothing we can do. It is called monergistic. God does it all. You understand how that is necessary? That's resurrection. Let's come over here to the other side of the pulpit. This is salvation. And God says, my son died for you, so you need to decide if you're going to accept him. And the pastor has to preach a tearful sermon and we're going to sing just as I am until you come forth. Now the problem with that is the scripture says all the wages of sin is death. There is none righteous, no not one. There is none who seeks God. So how can a dead person respond to the call of God? Well, he can't over here. Can she do it here? No. So as resurrection is monergistic, the work of God alone, so salvation is monogistic. God must give us new life before we can repent and confess and believe and have faith. So here's salvation, here's resurrection, and here's this long period in between. It's called lifetime. And God has a different plan for that. Instead of monergistic salvation and monergistic resurrection, he has this thing called synergistic sanctification. Sin means two or more working together. And he says, in this process, you must contribute. Now, why does God do salvation monergistic and resurrection monergistic and sanctification synergistic? Why? Well, the simple answer is so that he would receive glory. That's why he does the whole process. 
But more to the point, well, why does he say you've got to do this in this process? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, let's hold that there for a moment. What does that mean? It means we've got some work to do. In fact, in the bulletin, I give it you up there where it says our preparation for worship on page two. Look at this quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century English preacher. Under preparation for worship, he says, if God gives you the grace to make you believe, he will give you the grace to live a holy life afterwards. In fact, scripture says, it is God who is at work within you to uh, live and work out his uh, will. Now look what J.C. Rowell wrote. In justification, salvation, the word to be addressed to men is believe. Only believe. In sanctification, the word must be watch, pray, and fight. So we're talking different things here, aren't we? So let's break that down. On page five, you have models, methods, and motives. First of all, what's the model for sanctification? The word itself doesn't mean holy. It means separated. That's all it means. You can sanctify a pot, okay? You can wash it and say, I'm only going to use this to make Irish breakfast tea in the morning. It's set aside for one purpose, one purpose alone. And if you use it to make coffee, you defile it. Because that awful coffee flavor will get into the metal and destroy the light, delicate flavor of tea. See that? So it really means set aside for a special purpose. It means holy because when sinful people are set aside to serve a holy God, see that? Then they have to become holy the way he is holy. You can't serve in the king's presence with a dirty face and dirty smelly clothes. And God says, you must be holy because I am holy. And if you come into my presence, then you have to be dressed appropriately in holiness. Well, where do we get holiness? We've seen that we get holiness through Jesus Christ. His holiness, when we accept him, the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, his holiness is attributed to us. We took on his mantle of holiness, and our sin is attributed to him. He bore our sins. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. But that's positional. Uh, Josiah became a king of Israel when he was eight years old. And he had a regent, and he had all sorts of advisors around him. And they said, your job is to grow into being and becoming a king. You really can't be king at eight years old. I mean, you're not mature enough. You don't have enough knowledge. You take naps in the afternoon. I mean, what can we do about that? But you can, with our help, you can grow to be a great king. And he did. And so while we positionally, in God's eyes, have the righteousness of Christ, he says, during your lifetime, I want you to grow into being like Christ, becoming holy, becoming sanctified, uh, 
becoming like Christ, all these describe the same thing. If you look in your bulletin on page five, under model, in John 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Sanctify us through the word. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Well, why did Jesus be sent to the world? To represent God to the world, to explain God. That's what Jesus' job was. He exegeted God. He explained God. Ten times in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am Yahweh. I am the light of the world, the bread of life, the resurrection and the life. Jesus finished the sentence. He explained that's why he was sent. Well, then why are we sent? We are sent to explain God to the world. That's our job. See what he says? As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I'm going to be ascended. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And then it's my people's job to explain God to the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself. Now, that can't mean that Jesus is going to become holy, set apart from sin, can it? Because he didn't sin. And that's why many translations use the word consecrate to make that distinction. But the word that is sanctify, sanctify them in the truth, um, that they may be sanctified in truth, I sanctify myself, is the same word in Greek in the original language. It's the same word all three times. But some translations say Jesus consecrated himself. In other words, he set himself aside for a special work. That word then means the same thing in all these different nuances for us as Christians. Sanctified, set apart for a special purpose, and a requirement there is to not only be positionally righteous in Christ, but to begin the process of becoming righteous in this lifetime, becoming holy. So then we can be set aside for a special purpose, which is to explain God to the world. So that's what the word means, that Jesus is the model of that. Well, let's look for a moment at methods. Because uh, I was reading one person here, this is Heath Lambert, He's the uh, executive director of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And he says this, one of the most crucial areas of debate among Christians today concerns the doctrine of sanctification. How do you do that? What's the best method for becoming sanctified? You say, well, why do you need a method? Because apparently it doesn't happen instantaneously. It doesn't happen to everybody at the same pace or to the same degree. In fact, it's all over the place. So since it doesn't happen immediately instantaneously, and it happens over time, a lifetime, well, what's the process? How does it work? And different answers have been given. Okay. Some say it's a process. This is in the uh, denomination that we're in, in the uh, historical flow. It said it's a process of being exposed to God's word. In fact, Jesus says here, 
or in John 17, that they may be sanctified in truth. Your word is truth. Be exposed to God's word. Be exposed to the means of grace, which is God's word. It's also baptism, which indicates that we're part of the covenant community. It's the Lord's Supper, which renews our commitment to Christ and reminds us that he is present with us and that he gave his life for us. It's uh, praying, it's witnessing, it's giving, it's singing. All these things are ways that God works in our lives so that we can be sanctified. And so we turn ourselves over to the Holy Spirit and these elements work in our lives so that we are gradually sanctified. Some people say, well, that's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. Is there a shortcut? And yeah, apparently there are some shortcuts. You can be baptized in the Holy Spirit and immediately elevated to a higher plane of spirituality. Well, the Holy Spirit is invisible, so how do you know that you've been baptized in the Spirit? Well, uh, because then you speak in tongues. So that's how you know. So if you can do that, then you've got to step up. Okay? That's a good plan. Right? Uh, the Wesleyan tradition, John Wesley, believed in uh, perfectionism. Not that a person becomes perfect, but a person can experience a new level of Christian life and reach the point where they still make mistakes because they're human, but everything they do comes from a motive of love. And that's called perfectionism. Uh, Mr. Wesley confessed that he never reached that stage, but he knew people in the Wesleyan tradition in England that did. One of Mr. Sinclair, a godly preacher, he, Mr. Wesley said, had reached that state where he never did anything unless it was motivated by love, that state of sanctification. And so he designated Mr. Sinclair to be his successor, the leader of the Wesleyan Connection in England. Well, uh, Mr. Sinclair passed away before Mr. Wesley did, so they were stuck with Mr. Wesley, who never reached that level. Uh, there are other ways to do it, for example, once you start kind of backsliding a little bit, then uh, you can come forward at an altar call, especially during an annual time of revival, and rededicate your life. And that makes up for the backsliding, and then you can get another step up for the new year coming up. You can start off the year in January with a New Year's resolution. You can go through Lent and deny yourself certain things from food to activities. Uh, the list you begin to understand goes on and on. You can lose yourself in great Christian music so that your heart is melted and your soul is transported into the heavenlies. I mean, you can have a great preacher, maybe even one with a British or a Scottish accent. <laughs> and it's so beautiful to listen to that you just want to serve God. I mean, all of these methods, who is to say that any of these are bad? It's kind of a choose your poison. If you're moved by music, choose music. If you're moved by uh, uh, phenomena, uh, uh, choose Holy Spirit baptism. And so we people have actually kind of divided up based on how we grew up 
and what our personality is and what we've been exposed to. And so it's all over the place. So when you go to a church, you want to ask, well, uh, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Bible? But also ask, you know, well, how do you do baptism? You know, that tells you a lot about the belief. What do you believe about the end times? But you got to ask them, how do you get sanctified in this church? How do you get your people holy? How, what is that process? It's just all over the place, isn't it? And I'm not going to condemn any of them. But I'm going to say that I'm in this camp, the reform camp, because of something like Romans 6. This is the passage we're basing on this morning. He says, what then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? In Romans 6.15, by no means. See, they figured out, well, if you're not under the law but you're under grace, then you're done. If, G if God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ, we do anything we want to because we got it. You know, you got so much money in the bank, you won the lottery, right? You can't spend it all in a lifetime. So start spending. Spend it on anything you want. Waste it. And so that's what they were thinking. You know, we think that, that we get the idea that we Westerners are so individualistic and we're so messed up and they're so great, you know, uh, the closer they were to the original biblical times, the New Testament church. And here are these people in Rome are saying, hey, we've got the righteousness of Christ. Let's go sin. In fact, the more we sin, the more glory God gets because the more sins he gets to forgive. Now, you think that's crazy. Well, they thought it was pretty smart. By no means, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey as slaves, you are slaves to the whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. In other words, he's saying you were a slave to sin, and then when you received a new nature in Christ, you were no longer a slave to sin. Now, you don't have to sin. And his point is, so why do you, why continue? Well, it feels good, but it leads to death. It leads to death. Well, wait a minute, my sins are forgiven. But you're still going to die because your body has to live out that wages of sin. And you remember what happened with David? He committed adultery, then he committed murder. And he prayed, Psalm 51, and God forgave him. And he named his second son, Shalom, Solomon, peace with God. But how, what happened? The first child died because the wages of sin is death. Not that a, a, a child had to be sacrificed, but that sin deals death. And then what else happened? God said, from now on, there'll be no peace in your household. And then his oldest son, his dearest oldest son, fomented rebellion against David so that David had to flee Jerusalem. And in the ensuing battle, that son died. And David was inconsolable. He lost two children. He went through war. Sin brings death, dying, and destruction. 
And so Paul is saying in Romans 6, why would you do that if you don't have to? He said that one time you had to, you had no choice. You were slaves to sin, but now you are slaves to righteousness. You are free. Why would you want to go on sinning and do death dealing to yourself and to those you love and to those that you influence? Remember what we read, uh, Jeff read in the Old Testament passage, God said, my name is drugged through the mud by you Jews. Because you claim my name and you go out and sin. And he said, and I'm going to change the heart, not for your sake, but because of my glory. I'm going to make for myself a people whose heart is not stone, but flesh, and who will love my word and obey me for my glory. And so this is what Paul is saying. He said, I'm going to put this in human terms, verse 19, because you're weak in your natural selves. See, the word slavery and Christian don't belong in the same sentence. We are freed from sin. We are freed from the law. We are freed from death. And so to talk about a, a, a Christian slave is contradictory. So Paul says, but I'm going to do it to give you a metaphor to help you understand. Because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body and slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, which leads to holiness. See the process? See the process? Leads to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. You didn't worry. It didn't bother you what you were doing. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. He said, what were the wages? Death. So why would you keep doing that? But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it is a process. The reason I'm in the tradition I am and not the others is because in this passage, Paul doesn't say, go do this. He doesn't, I mean, if, if there were a shortcut, surely it would be there. Instead, he's saying, look at your position. You are now slaves to righteousness and not slaves to sin. So choose righteousness. Use your head. Use your heart. Realize that you don't have to do that anymore and reach death. You can do this now and reach righteousness, holiness, and eternal life. So in that passage, he is saying, use the means of grace. Turn to God and grow. And when I read that, I said, well, these other methods might have their place. But that's not what Paul is saying in Romans 6. And so that's where I am. It's slow. It's slogging. <laughs> it's not dramatic. You see, uh, I haven't done an altar call since I've been here. I've come close a time or two. Shall we do one today? I got accused of coming very close to my church in Durham a few times. 
And I miss it. I miss seeing everybody come forward. But what I don't miss is them thinking they're going to walk out the door and everything's going to be different. That the temptation has disappeared. And the things they wrestle with, anger and lust and greed and selfishness, are going to go away. Because then they go out and they wrestle again. And they think, oh, I'm going to have victory. And they don't wrestle as hard. And they actually start losing more than when they started. So I want to tell them, coming in. What does it say? What did Ryle say in the bulletin? I like the way he said it. The just, in justification, the word is believe, only believe. In sanctification, the word must be watch, pray, and fight. That's what he said. But I want to encourage you in this. Number one, I was doing some reading. I was really encouraged by this. Uh, David Paulus, is that his name? He's a director of the counseling ministry up at uh, Westminster Seminary. He's written a great book. It's about sanctification. And he says, look, sanctification is multifaceted. But we should be encouraged because of what I just said. We are no longer slaves to sin. We don't have to. We are slaves to righteousness. We can live a different life. And he says, first of all, God changes us. Look at Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in our lives. He's not left us alone to battle the enemy. He's working. He's giving us a desire to be holy. And look, you've got the word. Jesus said, I sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So every time we're exposed to God's word in preaching and teaching and reading and meditation, that word God is using to work in our lives. He had another one here. Suffering, struggle, and troubles change you. Look at uh, Hebrews 5.8. Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And sometimes that's suffering the wages of sin. And you say, I'm not going to do that again. And sometimes with Jesus, he didn't have to experience sin, just resisting that sin, just resisting it. 40 days in the wilderness with no food. And the temptation that came, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So God works in our lives. The word of God works in our lives. Tribulation works in our lives. But here's the main thing, not the main thing, but an important deal. First Thess 1 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Repentance means turn. Turn away from sin. Turn to God. Well, I'll give you a final point here, and it's this. What are the motives? There's got to be a reason that we're willing to learn to walk with God. Well, the first is this. Um, uh, up under methods, I put it there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And your neighbors yourself. Love of God and of Jesus often motivates us to choose B instead of A. But there's a second reason. 
love of God. Up here in this model, uh, Jesus up in John 17, for their sakes I sanctify, I consecrate myself for someone else, not just for myself. You don't have to turn your head, but I want you to think for a minute of the people that you're sitting, the people that are sitting next to you. The people sitting next to you are probably the most dear people to you on this earth. When you sin, you deal death. Because the wages of sin is death. When you live sin, when you choose sin, when you start living a lifestyle of sin, the people that experience it the most are sitting next to you. Why would you do that to them? Now let your mind wander on this whole sanctuary. These are the people that are in the fight with you. Why would you sin and deal death to them? And then let your mind be lifted up to this church and what people see when they drive down. 10,000 people a day. And they see the sign and they see this beautiful building and the red door. And when we sin, if we choose sin, if we live a lifestyle of sin, we deal death to them instead of life. But if we choose righteousness, if we let God and his word work in our lives, then we have righteousness, holiness, and eternal life. And the people you care about will receive life. And the people you worship with will receive life. And the people that drive by will receive life. So Paul says, you're no longer a slave to sin. So why choose sin? You're a slave to righteousness. Choose life. Choose holiness. Make means of the use of grace. Make, make use of the means of grace. Become like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have this option. That we are no longer through Jesus Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin with no choice. But we are now slaves to righteousness. And through the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Son, the washing of the word. The encouragement of our friends. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. The singing, the giving, the praying. Through all these things, we can be strengthened and encouraged. And we can choose life for ourselves and for those we love, for those we worship with, for people in this county. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.